uh, oh, about five or six years ago. She and I met as part of the uh, Templeton Oxford series in Oxford University. And we discovered we are kindred spirits. And she is going to be talking with us about sexisms and phobias, the emotional valence of sexual variations. So please join me in a warm welcome for Heather Loy. Bud uh, pointed out earlier that these things are designed for men with ties. And belts. Okay, can you hear me? Okay, good. All right, um, this is another change of gears. Unfortunately, um, uh, Judy wasn't here to do her other talk, the other talk on uh, sort of the science of gender and sexuality. Um, so Bud's kind of standing alone there, although um, one of the presentations this morning uh, did touch on it slightly. Um, what I want to do is, is make another shift, and I'd like to talk about um, the role of emotions in our responses to issues of sex and, sex and sexuality. Um, and this is something that emerged uh, because I do research in um, sex and sexuality, the biopsychology of human sex, sex and sexuality. And, um, and what I was finding was that um, uh, people get really emotional about this stuff, especially about certain aspects of sex and sexuality. And, uh, and, and the conversations get tense and, um, and, and people react really strongly and, and you know, if I reflect on my own internal state, I find that I too can get quite emotional about these issues. Um, maybe not, we don't get emotional for all the same reasons. But what I'd like to do is, um, is just to explore that a little bit. And, and, and the point of doing it is to, um, I, I think it's important because I think, uh, I, I'm a psychologist and one of the th first things you learn is that uh, if you're going to help other people, you've got to become self-aware. Um, and, and know where you're coming from and why you're reacting the way you do. And, and so this is an exercise in re self-reflection and self-awareness, which hopefully will um, uh, be useful to at least some of you. Okay. Sexual issues generate passion, pun intended. Um, as I've already noted, sexual characteristics... Okay. Just a sec here. Get this to stick. Sexual. Higher? There, is that better? Sexual characteristics and behaviors generate um, what, at least to my under perception and observation, are peculiarly strong visceral emotional responses. And the focus of those responses, at least at the present time in this North American context, is on sexual variation. So issues of transgender, intersexuality, and especially homosexuality. Now these are um, issues that if we're just talking about the individuals who are affected as opposed to the circle of uh, relationships that they're in, um, we're talking about maximum 5% of the population. Um, and I just want you to keep that number in mind uh, when I give you some comparisons. I, I'm wondering if the strength of our reaction to these particular issues is uh, disproportionate to um, the uh, sort of impact of these issues on um, our lives, on our communities, on our societies. 
So I did some searches just to see what would happen. So I started out with Google. And uh, these searches, by the way, are just not these specific words, but these words and words that are related to them. Um, and uh, so I thought, okay, um, I've particularly noticed this, and this is, we're, we're a community of Christians here, so um, I focused on that subset. Um, if I do a Google search for um, homosexual and Christian, I get 5.5 million hits. If I do a Google search for divorce and Christian, I get 5.4 million hits. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that you know one thing is, is, is not an issue and the other thing is an issue, but just keep in mind now how many people divorce affects in our population and how many people homosexuality affects in our population. And then ask yourself, why are Christians equally or perhaps even slightly more um, exercised with homosexuality than they are with divorce, um, which you know certainly is also addressed in scripture. I also went to a couple of um, widely uh, used and cited uh, Christian websites. The Family Research Council um, has 500 pages um, dealing with homosexuality and 71 dealing with divorce. Uh, Focus on the Family has 871 pages dealing with homosexuality and 690 pages dealing with divorce. It's not that divorce is being ignored, um, but I'm just thinking that the responses are perhaps a little bit disproportionate. Uh, to the impact. Even more important, I think, than those numbers is the language that's getting used. And I've been sent anonymous clippings from, I assume, other Christians, I, based on the materials that they send me. I wish they wouldn't be anonymous. Um, but, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, of articles and little newsletters and so on that have really quite inflammatory language. But it's not just in those you know, little newsletters that some, um, you know, concerned Christians from some sub-community are producing. It's, it's uh, uh, in, in more widely documented sources as well. So, for example, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada put together a video which has some very, very good elements in it. I recommend that you watch it. But um, it, uh, um, the title of the video is called The Gay Agenda. And that sounds like conspiracy theory. There's a bunch of homosexual people out there that have an agenda. And, and they're trying to do something to the rest of us who aren't homosexual, presumably, and um, who, you know, should be really scared. Um, disgusting practices, bizarre fantasies, disease and deformity. These are words that are being used in relation to um, the specific sexual variations that I mentioned at the beginning. So homosexuality mainly, um, transgender intersexuality. This is pretty strong language. Um, uh, the um, Family Research Council, right on their um, uh, homepage, um, and I just found this a couple of days ago, um, had this quote, if we don't act now, counterfeit marriage will spread across America. They're addressing the same-sex marriage uh, debate. Pastors will be silenced from speaking publicly against homosexuality. Schools will teach your children that homosexual behavior is normal and healthy. We have no time to lose. The crisis is so great. Now, again... My point here is not to debate the issue of same-sex marriage. My point here is to show you that um, people are passionate about this, and they're using really strong language to talk about it. And keep that in mind as, as um, I get to the point of how that might shape the way we think about it. Here's a few images to um, uh, further hammer the point home. 
this uh, photograph at the top was uh, uh, published in a um, newspaper uh, in the United States, and um, this quote below is a response to that photograph, a letter to the editor. Your publishing of a photograph of two homosexual men kissing will show to Americans how disgusting and repulsive homosexuality is. These are uh, some Christian protesters. Uh, thank God for dead soldiers. Um, uh, USA is a fag nation. God hates America. God hates fags. Um, you're going to hell. God is your enemy, not blessed, just cursed. God hates you. This is really strong language. These, I find these extremely disturbing images. And these are Christians. Now, I don't want to suggest that any of us in this room would participate in this. This, the, the, this is not about, you know, um, all Christians are out there sending this message. Um, but there are Christians out there who are sending this message. And these images are powerful, and they grab people's attention, and they trigger strong emotional reactions in response. This is a, um, a group of Orthodox Jews who are at a gay pride parade in Jerusalem, and um, they are protesting the gay pride parade. Great big letters, shame. Notice that these are emotional words. God hates you, shame, disgusting, repulsive, strong negative emotional terms. This is a, um, an advertisement that was put out by the Gay Police Association, um, I believe mainly in California. Um, and uh, what they're doing here is they're actually explicitly linking Christians with gay bashing, with homosexual abuse. Um, now, whether or not that's fair, um, the Gay Police Association's experience is, and I don't know if you can read this, it's not that clear up there, um, that uh, in the last 12 months, the Gay Police Association has recorded a 74% increase in homophobic incidents where the sole or primary motivating factor was the religious belief of the perpetrator. We are not looking very good, folks. This doesn't, I mean, and I say we even though we are not necessarily doing any of this. We are Christians, and, and we're part of the body of Christ, and part of this body, some, there are organs or cells in this body that are doing this. And so we need to ask ourselves if that's what we want to be communicating. Why does this matter? Well, it matters... Because for, for a number of reasons. One is that, uh, as the quote says here, there's a growing conviction that human sexuality is the test case for communities of faith in our time. The issue of homosexuality is probably the most divisive issue since slavery split the church. And probably many of you are aware of this. Maybe you're experiencing it within your own denominations or within your own personal lives. Um, the, the divisiveness, the difficulty, the challenge, and the, 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 the intensity with which um, these things are discussed and um, struggled with. The impact of these negative emotional responses to sexual variations, I would argue, is huge. First of all, Research has shown that parental rejection is the single greatest problem that, um, uh, and risk factor for gay youth and um, seems to be similar also for uh, people with tran uh, transgender conditions or intersex conditions. 
um, that uh, if, you, if your parents reject you, um, then your risk for, um, for suicide, for depression, for mental illness, for, um, uh, for uh, doing other abusive behaviors like drug addiction or you know, um, ending up sort of community-less and then sucked into some community that may be not so healthy for you and so on. It's absolutely huge. And the flip side is also huge. Parental acceptance, which isn't necessarily parental approval, but parental acceptance for gay youth is, is the single most important mitigating factor, um, the thing that, 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 that seems to um, most help gay youth deal with their same-sex attractions, figure out you know, how they're going to identify, how they're going to live, how they're going to develop as whole psychosexually healthy human beings. We also know that when you find something repulsive or disgusting, you don't go near it. You don't pick it up, you don't interact with it, you don't touch it, um, you don't like it. Well, if that's the way you feel about a person or about something that looms very large in your mind when you're with a particular person, it's very, very difficult to be in a loving relationship with that person. That, that's just a huge barrier to overcome. That's part of human nature. That, that, I mean, those emotions have a function. But do we want them to have this function in this context? Also, our time, our energy, our money goes to those issues that we feel strongly about, the things that we are passionate about. Now, I've already suggested that uh, perhaps our, our um, interest in sexual variations is disproportionate to their actual presence and impact. Not to say that they're trivial and they should be ignored, but, but rather that, that the reaction is disproportionate. Um, and that can lead to a distortion of priorities. Uh, just as one example, um, scripture references to sexuality. Um, when I did a, a, a search on uh, Bible Gateway and I tried several different translations, um, about 56 times uh, does scripture refer to sexuality. Um, twice in the Gospels. Um, now, it depends how you define the term, of course. So, you know, you might come up with slightly different numbers if you search with slightly different terms. Um, references to poverty and the dangers of wealth, a lot more. So, however you're going to type in the terms, you're going to get this imbalance. Um, what are the priorities in Scripture? What are our priorities? What are we putting our energy into? Well, we put our energy into those things we care about, the things that we're passionate about, the things that we feel strongly about. And, and here we have an issue that we feel strongly about is directing our energies. I mean, you look at the, the, the amount of web space, the amount of dialogue, the amount of media, the advertising, the institutes, the fundraising that goes into you know, um, dealing with um, things like homosexuality, uh, for example, compared to dealing with poverty or compared to dealing with uh, um, various forms of injustice or environmental degradation and so on. And, and there are some disproportions there, I would argue, and some distortions that we might want to um, reflect on and repent of. Okay, I'm, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip through this question, um, is there some justification for us putting so much attention on sexuality? Um, and reacting so strongly. So if you want to discuss that later, we can, but I'm going to skip through um, this, uh, um, this little bit and get to the next part. 
What is the role of these emotional responses in the ways that we evaluate and judge issues of sexuality, particularly sexual variations? Traditionally, um, emotions have been viewed as partial, arbitrary, and passive, and that our moral judgments should be made, should be impartial, they should be well-grounded, and they should be made freely. Um, very much as sort of a, um, emotions are irrational, and rational thought does not evol involve emotions. Okay, so the, the general uh, traditional view has been that emotions are detrimental to moral judgments and are to be avoided in moral decision-making. And so what you see here in this diagram is that here's a situation that you, you need to respond to, um, have some kind of value judgment, and the main arrow is through this way. You reason about that situation to come to a, a judgment. Emotions might be involved, and they might interact with your reasoning a little bit, but that's a secondary um, step, and it's uh, not viewed as uh, causally significant or, um, and, and certainly not a step that we should be um, valuing. So you get your, uh, you know, your Mr. Spock from Star Trek, who, um, you know, as a Vulcan, has um, risen above emotions in order to be logical, and that pure logic is somehow viewed as more valuable um, and a better way to be than um, to be an emotional being. Well, again, I don't have time to get into this literature, but it's very well-established literature, um, relatively recent, though, um, that emotions do influence our moral judgments. Um, they give value. It, they make us care about things. Without, without emotions, you know, give a rip. And there are people with certain kinds of brain injuries who don't seem to feel emotions in the same way that most of us do, um, who really don't seem to give a rip. The, um, I, I remember one man with a frontal lobe injury who said, well, I know she's feeling upset. My wife is feeling upset about this, but I'm sorry, but I just don't care. And, and even saying I'm sorry was kind of saying the words without really the feeling behind it. Um, you know, emotions enable us to value things, and, and that's what moral judgment is about, is determining whether something should be valued or discarded, whether it's good or bad, right or wrong. We also know that emotional responses actually predict our moral judgments better than our informational assumptions and beliefs. If you want to figure out how, how somebody's going to judge a particular situation in terms of whether this was a right thing to do or a wrong thing to do, the best predictor is their emotional reaction to the situation um, and not um, what they said they believed rationally about the situation. We also know that our emotions are necessary for morality and for moral reasoning. It's not just that they do influence, it is, is that if you don't have them, uh, you get really bad at it. Um, the automatic tagging of ordinary social events with moral values and their related emotions may be an important mechanism for implicit social behaviors in humans. Um, this comes out of research that's uh, showing that um, when people engage in moral reasoning, um, they draw on emotional processes as well as um, rational processes. And um, you may be particularly familiar with um, uh, Damasio's work on this, although several other people have done it as well, um, that moral judgments and decision-making become erratic and inappropriate when emotions are absent or disconnected from reasoning. So, you know, the fact that we feel about things and that we feel strongly about things and that they have an influence on our thinking is not a bad thing. 
This is a normal thing. It's a natural thing. It's part of being human. It's necessary for us to be the, the moral agents that we are. But emotions are not always good or accurate indicators of moral status. And what I, many of the things that I've, I've read, um, people who engage in um, diatribes about certain kinds of sexual variations and so on, um, the, the language that they use suggests that they believe that their emotional reaction is a kind of an innate signal that God has given them to tell them that this is wrong or this is right. So if you feel good about it, it's okay. And if you feel bad about it, it's not okay. Um, and so they say, well, the fact that I find the idea of two men kissing each other, you know, viscerally repulsive um, means that it is wrong because I wouldn't find it repulsive if it was right or if it was good. Um, and, and so what they're, they're making an argument based on their emotional um, response to the situation. Now, whether that's, uh, you know, in part appropriate or not is, is another uh, topic. We know that our emotional responses to events in our experience um, are not always good, um, or sorry, are, I'm repeating myself here, are shaped by social cultural processes and context. Um, Aristotle already had this figured out, that what you need to do is you need to cultivate your desires, you need to cultivate your emotions in accordance with the virtues. Um, that that's a practice that you engage in. It's a socialization process. It's a developmental process. Um, this, uh, um, this is a quote from uh, a philosopher who uh, wrote the paper called Is Sex Morally Special? That was the heading on those slides I skipped. Um, if you have trained your desires in the right way, you will be morally repelled. There's an emotional reaction there, perhaps quite unreflectively by the idea of perversion. This virtue-based approach may both explain and justify the aversion to certain sexual proclivities, so that our, um, uh, you know, our emotional uh, revulsions or attractions um, can then, um, you know, seem to be playing a role in us deciding whether something's a perversion or whether something's uh, acceptable. Now, we also know that. Our emotions are deliberately manipulated by activists, by the media, and so on. I showed you those images earlier and that, that language earlier. These are people who are, as we all do when we're trying to persuade, using emotional language to convince and to persuade. And, um, and, and what the, the most effective way to you know, get somebody to uh, sort of come on board with you is to trigger their emotions, to get them feeling strongly about this so that you, you know, if you want to stop something, um, so for example, you want to stop your state or your, you know, your country from passing a law about same-sex marriage, uh, uh, allowing same-sex marriage, and you feel really strongly that that shouldn't happen, you know, the most effective way to persuade people is to get them really scared or really angry about it or to get them to feel really disgusted or repelled by the very notion because then they're going to feel really negative about it and then they're going to then somehow that becomes a, 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 a an important influencing factor in the way that they think about it now you know as i said earlier emotions play an important role in our moral judgment so we don't want to just remove them we don't want to sort of put a little circle around them and say put that aside let's just look at the facts um, because that doesn't seem to work very well either 
uh, on the other hand, um, you know, we don't want to be just blown about by whoever's got the best rhetoric and is most able to, you know, play the violin of our emotions and come up with the melody of their choosing. Now, what um, people in um, psychology, social psychology, and also um, uh, certain uh, uh, people in cognitive neuroscience are, are, are doing are trying to understand um, how emotions play a role in our moral judgments, um, how that happens in a social context, um, you know, and, and what they've identified, and I'm not expecting you to, like, I'm not going to unpack this whole diagram or anything. Um, what I want to just uh, point out to you is that, you know, there's a clear understanding that the relationships between moral judgment, beliefs, and your emotions, they're very complex. They're in a dynamic relationship with one another. They're mutually influencing, um, and they happen in a social context. So that, you know, you have a path here, there's a situation, there's intuitions, there's judgments, there's reasoning, and there's other people that you are interacting with as you engage in those processes. And they, they are influencing one another. There's a number of theories out there. Um, people are still, you know, working on this. Um, this is an ongoing process. So I can't give you some tidy little formula that says, you know, emotions here, reasoning here, judgments here. Um, you know, this is how they all interact because it's just not there yet. But people are trying to understand this. We know that emotions are important and crucial. What we're trying to figure out is how best to use them. So what's the point for us here? Um, I, I know I'm kind of flitting like a butterfly from one huge area to another, but I'm just trying to give you a flavor. Um, so just briefly to summarize then, sexuality may have morally special status, may not that's a, a, a discussion we could have later. Certainly generates strong emotions. We know that emotions do influence moral judgments. We also know that emotions are influenced by our beliefs and by our context. We also know, and this is old knowledge in psychology, that emotions motivate and influence our behavior. They, they affect what we do. And so we get to our practice. Now, the theme of this conference is that Micah 6, verse 8 passage. How do we as Christians respond to issues of sexuality, these sexual variations, or the gender issues that we've been talking about more broadly here? Um, how do we respond to them with humility, with mercy, and with justice? Um, you know, the emotions of compassion, of empathy, of understanding, um, but also discernment and wisdom. Uh, in order to address them. And, and one of the things that I really noticed in, in my work in human sexuality and gender issues, whether it's talking about policies in my institution, my workplace, or whether it's um, you know, doing scientific research or presenting you know, or having discussions or within the church about homosexuality and so on, one of the things that I've really been st struck by um, is, is just how quickly people get defensive. And the emotions just get, in, you know, in a way they're getting in the way because people get really upset because they feel really strongly about it one way or the other, and then it's very difficult to get into a conversation. I was at a, at a conference once where I was actually a, in a significant minority as a heterosexual woman. Um, it was a very good and illuminating experience for me, um, and uh, um, one of the things that I discovered was that um, I was not allowed to ask questions about um, sexual norms or appropriate sexual behavior because um, you know, 
I was perceived as speaking out of, you know, sort of the powerful majority. Um, and, and these were individuals who had been so hurt and so bruised, particularly by their church communities, because of their experiences with sexuality, that, that um, you know, they, they just were, you know, they just reacted and said, you know, if, if you're going to speak out of that, I don't want to listen to you. I, I don't want to hear you. I can't. Um, you know, there's too much hurt. There's too much anger. You know, it just pushes too many buttons. And, and so we couldn't even have a conversation. I mean, the, the emotion stuff, you know, plays a, a role in all directions here. And, and very, very difficult. Um, you know, I wasn't there to try to tell other people what to do. I wanted to learn and wanted to understand more. But it, in order to do it, I needed to be able to ask questions. And I couldn't do that. All I could do was shut up and listen, which was maybe a rather salutary experience to have. Um, I would argue that as Christians, we need to appropriately cultivate moral beliefs and emotional responses. And by appropriately cultivate, of course, we need to draw then on our theological traditions and so on. I think one of the things we need to attend to is both the means and the fruits of our responses to sexual variations. So, um, you know, how do we respond? Do we inappropriately manipulate people's emotions in order to get our agenda across? Um, you know, or do we do that appropriately? Um, what are the fruits of our responses? Are, are they causing div division and, and hurt and pain and anger in unnecessary ways? Or are they, um, you know, be, you know, uh, producing sort of as much as we possibly can loving dialogue. Um, yeah, I realize I'm out of time and some of you need to go to another talk, so if you need to disappear, feel free. Um, we need to become aware of the power of our emotions to influence our judgments and responses and of the power of rhetoric and images to trigger and shape them. I think we need to be very humble about our understanding of human sexuality. As Bud said, there isn't actually really good foundational work on this question. Um, it's still, Christians, we're still stuck in a rather simplistic sexual ethic um, that needs to be unpacked and made much more nuanced. Um, and I think we need to be drawing on good scholarship uh, to help us understand the various multidimensional uh, aspects of this. There are Christians who are dealing with these issues and trying to do it from a Micah 6 verse 8 perspective. Um, and so I just want to alert you to their presence. Um, there's uh, uh, Witherspoon on the web uh, for uh, Progressive Presbyterians, Center for Public Justice, Citizens for Public Justice in Canada. There's a very interesting religious declaration on sexual morality, justice, and healing that has been signed by um, people of many Christian churches and also of other faiths. Um, and I've got the URLs there. If you're interested, um, you know, give me your email address and I'll send you um, the slide and you can uh, look those up. Um, I think, you know, in the end, um, if, if I ask myself, what are the means and what are the fruits? The means and the fruits have to do with loving one another. I don't mean love by warm, fuzzy feelings and everybody's just all nice and happy and we don't ever ask hard questions or hold anybody to account. But this is the central command of scripture, is whatever we think that looks like, to love one another um, and uh, to, to love one another the way Jesus loves us, and also to do it in such a way that people will recognize that, you know, we are the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, the people of the way. And so maybe we can counter those images of Christians that I showed you earlier um, when we deal with this kind of stuff. Um, okay, that was kind of all over the place, but... Um,
that's all that I have to say for now. And then um, for the next little bit of time that we have, uh, we can have a conversation about this, what Bud talked about, this morning's talks, uh, whatever uh, is your will. And thank you for listening.